On average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? Welcome. You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Catherine Winters, a PhD student at URI, and we are once again in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media. We are glad you've joined us for this episode of Careers in the Public Humanities with PhD candidate Laura Titro at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. Laura is also a URI alumna and received her Bachelor of Arts in English here in 2010. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you. First of all, we'd like to say congratulations on receiving the 2017 Conference on College Composition and Communication Gloria Enzaldúa Rhetorician Award. Can you tell us a bit more about your work with contemporary art activism in digital spaces? Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I work with sort of telling cases of like very recent examples of like what type of public rhetoric is used in social justice movements um, at the intersection of these issues. Um, What are some sort of telling cases of concerns and questions that are arising right now? Um, And what can that tell us in rhetoric and English about how to be better allies for social justice movements, how to understand what's going on in the public sphere right now, and also how that can sort of help us understand how to think about and theorize rhetoric and activism um, beyond what we have traditionally thought of in those spheres. Can you give us an example of a test case you're looking at? So I um, just finished writing a chapter on uh, the Black Lives Matter initiative called Black Futures Month, which is um, every February a series that is sort of a response to and against Black History Month, um, where writers and artists publish a daily blog post where they're talking about an issue of concern to black futures. And it's highly intersectional. There's a lot of queerness threaded through, um, a lot about black trans issues and a lot of other points of intersections um, with multiple oppressions. So I just finished a chapter about that, looking at the rhetorical strategies these writers and artists use and what that can tell us. What are some of the strategies that they are using? I think It's really important to look at how people are constructing intersectional rhetorics right now. I feel like it's something that people have been giving like a lot of lip service to for decades, but people don't often know exactly how to do. And a big problem is that in constructions of intersectionality, like in mainstream feminism, um, even in a lot of academic work, um, it basically ignores like the work of women of color, especially queer women of color who have been doing that theorizing and that hard work for a really long time. I'm looking at what is being enacted right now. So the post, the series started in 2015 and has gone on for three years since then. 
some of the strategies they use are making sure to, like it's never a single issue. It's always how one form of oppression is always connected to others at the root. You know, like racism is always connected to heteropatriarchy, for instance. And in that sense, like constructing a movement discourse and a movement rhetoric is a challenge because it has to focus on kind of the central communities, like who are the most vulnerable communities that are meant to be served by this rhetoric. But also, how do we make sure that it is not too simplistic and connect to this whole web of other things to really challenge the structural oppressions that they're fighting against? A key strategy is really making sure that movement messaging is both very specific and very interconnected. Thank you. What do the humanities generally and rhetoric specifically have to tell us about our world? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll start with rhetoric and then branch out. So I think that rhetoric has to tell us a lot about how language and other forms of meaning making, you know, images, sound, shapes our perceptions of reality, um, which is kind of how I define rhetoric, like not only as like the act of persuasion, but also as an attempt to shape how people perceive reality. So I think the ways that we use language and other resources are central to that process. You know, the, the language we kind of inherit and live within in a society is so pervasive but often so unchallenged and just taken for granted and i think that the point of rhetoric at least to me is to make that visible and to sort of denaturalize the types of language we have inherited and think about how we cannot just sort of repeat the same discourses that have been circulated for so long but also really challenge them and say like, oh, where did this come from? Like, how is this persuading? Like, how is this actually operating if you break it down? Um, And then also not only break things down, but build things up, which is why I think academics get stuck in the role of critics sometimes without thinking about not only are what we tearing down, but what can we build up in its place? So I think rhetoric can also be key to that process, figuring out, okay, like what forms of meaning making would actually help to create a more just world. Um, And obviously it can't only be rhetoric, it's movement building and activism in so many different forms. But I think the types of language and other resources we use are key to that process. And then humanities more broadly, I think, is just sort of an outgrowth of that same thing. Like no matter what field, if we are sort of looking through language, through visual art, through performance, history, anything else, all of those fields help us understand sort of how we got here and how the discourses that shape our reality have circulated and constructed that reality, and then also how we can challenge that. So the idea of this building up, that really connects well to this idea of how are we communicating these things to the various publics? How are we not just theorizing this, but bringing it out to the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I think it's really important that we sort of reach out and like meet communities where they are and not only expect them to come to us in the academy. So for my dissertation, like it's mostly a sort of textual and visual analysis project. But in the future, I really hope to integrate more of my community work and community activism into my academic work as well, because that's really important to me. I also think that 
you know, I come from a background that is more creative writing, creative nonfiction. I have an MFA. So I feel like the way that I got into writing and academia was through a more public model of writing than is usually thought of as a purview of like academic study. So obviously communicating with our academic peers in those spaces and journals and conferences and things is important to grow the field and sort of talk to each other. But the writing tradition that I come from is really more oriented also toward the public and figuring out how to get your ideas uh, to various audiences and then also how to take feedback and how to expand that work. It's really important to me in the future to try to expand my work even more into reaching communities, working with communities, and learning from communities too, because that informs my work so much. Like going to a local like Black Lives Matter event or something like that, like even going to like a protest, like and just listening informs my work really deeply. So I think that's really important. So you mentioned the idea of working with different audiences. Do you find yourself working to translate what you're doing for different audiences or do you have a more encompassing method for reaching different groups? Yeah, I think there's definitely some translation that goes on. And I think that translation is a really important skill because I feel like no matter what your specific area of research is, um, you always have to figure out how to make it intelligible to different audiences, to different academic audiences, to public audiences, to friends and family not in academia who want to know what you're doing, (laughs) um, everything like that. So I think it definitely is a process of translation and... The way I think about that is kind of in a a social justice education framework. So like a lot of people when they first encounter like say the terminology or the rhetoric used in social justice movements, like it's so foreign, it's so like not what they're used to. It's kind of like, oh, we have to be this way now. Like we can only say this thing and people can feel like kind of restricted by that. So I see my role, like especially like using my privilege as a white person to able to connect with people who might not be totally on board and be like, oh, this is the reason this language is used. You know, this is why I'm studying this type of rhetoric. This is why I think it's really useful and helpful to understand. So that's how I kind of approach that translation is kind of meeting people where they are in terms of social justice um, because that's the focus of my work and bringing them in at the point where they are. Do you see this translation work as do you realize the audience exists first and then work to meet them where they need to be met or do you start translating for a group and then start seeing how it could connect to a different audience? I'd say probably starting with the group and You know, I think there's been a lot of talk recently about how people, you know, in the U.S. need to, like, get out of their bubble and, like, talk to others. And some of that, like, I think needs to be interrogated in terms of who has the privilege to be able to cross bubbles and who that would be a real danger for. You know, we can't all, it's not an even public sphere. We can't all kind of jump into different communities and kind of start persuading them like it's definitely a question of privilege and for a lot of people it would be you know a risk of real harm to go into those so I'd say I start with the group and then think about like okay like where what do you know where are you like what do you care about Um, and how can I kind of listen to you and figure out 
what's going on, but also maybe get you a little bit more on board with this type of politics. <laughs> when we're trying to communicate broadly, how do our social locations affect our ability to speak to these different publics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it shapes it intrinsically and can't and shouldn't be something that you have to sort of get over or get past. I think it's just integral to the process. So I think it's good to be very conscious of where you have privilege, especially. Like I'm a white, queer-identified woman, um, and a lot of my consciousness of social justice came from the fact that I occupy like both privileged and marginalized social locations, um, and that plays out in different ways like in my life. But I think it's really important to look at um, where you might have privilege to go into spaces that others cannot and help to move some of that work forward. Like I think uh, Alicia Garza, Black Lives Matter, said something about white people like you need to organize your own and I think that it's obviously not the only thing we have to do we also have to listen to people of color listen to people who experience oppressions that we don't which I think is important no matter what your social location is but especially like thinking about where I might be able to go in you know as a white person as an academic as someone with this kind of uh, cultural institutional capital behind me that's really effective at figuring out where I can maybe make a change or where I can communicate with different publics. And then also thinking about my other identities as well, like queer community is incredibly important to me in my life and in my research and kind of activism and everything. So not only do I think about like how am I privileged and what spaces can I go into uh, to move this work forward, but also like what community and what support am I drawing from to be able to do that. Can you say more about the cross-section of rhetoric and social activism and what openings specifically you see for rhetoricians in people movements today? The cross-section I see, and there are many, and people in rhetoric approach it in a lot of different ways, but what I'm working at is the intersection of sort of rhetoric and movement building and movement messaging. And I think that in rhetoric, we have a lot to learn from the people that are constructing that messaging, especially queer communities of color and communities that don't often get represented in rhetoric scholarship or English scholarship. I feel like it's moved forward and like challenging like the white male straight canon, but we can always do more. And especially thinking about how activist practices can really challenge like how we theorize rhetoric and communication and think about it in a really different way than is traditionally represented. That's the intersection that I see. So I feel like the place of rhetoricians is as learners, as listeners, which I feel like is a space that sometimes as academics we're maybe not used to occupying. You know, we're used to being the at the front of the room and used to being the one who's the expert on language and and all of these things. But I think if we think about sort of more more dialectical like pedagogies and more social justice informed work, it's really important for us as rhetoricians to kind of shift to like, oh, what are the rhetorical practices that people in activist communities are developing and how are those working? And what can we learn from them about rhetoric and how can we bring that to the field to also make the field more inclusive and more equitable? Do you also see this as an opportunity to encourage movement building as something that's inclusive and building as opposed to decisive or othering? Yeah, absolutely. I think that 
the questions that are really difficult about movement building and communication have to do with, you know, how to be inclusive of various oppressed people without, you know, splintering the message. And I feel like that in like queer activism, for instance, like that's kind of a a constant question, like how far can you push like who's included under the umbrella of like LGBTQ before it kind of breaks down maybe and doesn't have messaging that serves a specific community, but also how can a movement maintain that inclusivity in order to be really intersectional because I think also what we see is when movements get very splintered then they also get very exclusive so for instance like the mainstream feminist movements exclusion of women of color like the mainstream lesbian movements exclusion of trans women everything like that so it's a need to balance specificity of who is being served with intersectionality how are we connecting this and opening it up to not only include more people but challenge oppressions like at their interconnected roots that's really hard (laughs) um which is why i think we have a lot to learn from the people doing it and kind of struggling through all those questions because it really is a struggle not just an answer or not just like okay we figured it out like if it was all figured out for all time like we wouldn't have the problems that we would have now and the patriarchy would be over so that would be great but it's not the case (laughs) you mentioned earlier in the future hoping to bring your work more to your own activism How do you see your research and what you're doing right now as connecting to this greater public? How do you want to bring it to your activism? A lot of my research really has to do with doing my homework and learning because I think it's really easy, for instance, as a white person to you know, to put maybe too much labor on people of color or ask people to educate me about the things that I don't know because of my background. When there's a lot out there, if I kind of am a good researcher and do my homework, there's a lot that I can learn from what people have put out there publicly. So I really see part of my work as that learning process and that process of doing my homework to be part of activist movements and know my history know where it's all coming from, like know how these movement rhetorics have been built, because that's also something, you know, that we don't really learn in school, like even graduate school. So I see it partly as a learning process that will hopefully inform my ability to be a better advocate and a better ally for communities in whatever space I end up in after the PhD. And I also see it as a way to make my work useful for not only other academics, but also for those broader publics. And I conceive of those publics as maybe the community that will be immediately surrounding, like wherever I hopefully get a job or the communities, like even within a specific university that are maybe overlooked by the university or by a department. So I feel like it's given me like kind of an attunement to looking at like, okay, what is getting left out or left behind here, even in pursuit of activist goals, who is not being centered. So I feel like my research is really already and is going to continue to help me ask those hard questions in whatever spaces I encounter. And then also on a practical level, like I just like to do more work bringing sort of university and community together in the future. I'd love to publish not only in academic venues, but also for a wider audience. I feel like there's a lot 
being written about social justice issues in less academic, maybe more mainstream or popular publications, some of which is really great, some of which I see and is kind of like mm, problematic. So I would really like to also contribute in those spaces and write for an academic audience, but also for a more maybe a more popular audience too. So speaking of after the PhD, going back to before you actually began your PhD program, how did you consider the job market and whether it was a good idea to get into a PhD program? My path to the PhD was kind of a little bit windy, like not as windy as some people um, who have actually worked outside of academia for longer. But... I did not always know that I wanted to get a PhD or that I wanted to go into academia. So I did my undergraduate degree here at URI in English because I had always loved writing and reading and thinking critically and all those English major things. But I had a lot of varied career ambitions during my time as an undergraduate. I was like, maybe I'll be a journalist. Maybe I'll be, you know, an editor of some kind. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Um, And then at the end, I decided to go to an MFA program in creative writing at Emerson College in Boston in nonfiction writing because I was thinking I wanted to pursue that kind of more public model of writing and do like long form journalism or something like that. Um, And then kind of while I was at Emerson, I was thinking about like career prospects, you know, what can one do with an MFA? And I didn't really know. (laughs) And, you know, my friends with MFAs are now doing a lot of varied things, but I actually started teaching while I was at Emerson doing my master's and was thinking, oh, okay, like I could probably, I could do this. And then I taught for two years there in the the first year writing program at Emerson and really started to love it a lot more and see how writing could connect to teaching. And there were also a lot of great like community initiatives going on around me at Emerson. So I kind of just really got interested in that sort of academic life and intellectual community and decided that I wanted more of that. And I also sort of started developing really more like research interest that I thought would be best pursued in a PhD instead of trying to sort of go it alone as like a freelancer or something. Um, So that's really why I decided to apply for the PhD and then why rhetoric specifically after, you know, all my degrees are English, but all like slightly different manifestations of like English studies. So I really got interested in rhetoric specifically at the intersection of language and power and thinking about rhetoric as a field that is specifically sort of on that pulse point of how language and other ways we communicate serve to reinforce and disrupt and do all sorts of different things with the power structures in society. So I was like, yes, rhetoric. I want to continue doing that and applied to PhD programs and ended up at Louisville, which has been great. So that's kind of my path to the PhD. What is your motivation behind getting a PhD? I guess my personal motivation for getting a PhD was to, you know, not only be qualified for university faculty positions at like the full-time level, but also to sort of gain credibility as a researcher to learn all of those sort of like methodological, theoretical challenges that come with doing research that, you know, people can and do 
uh, do research of that kind without a PhD. But for me, that was the route that made the most sense. I wanted like immersion in a field to learn, you know, the various methodologies of that field. And rhetoric is such a huge, diverse field that I've also been exposed to so much people doing similar and different work to myself. That was really my motivation to sort of gain more experience as a researcher and as a teacher, like teaching is really important to me as well, and sort of enter the field in that way. So what exactly would you like to do after the PhD in an ideal world? (laughs) In an ideal world, I am going on the academic job market starting this fall. And ideally, I hope to have a, you know, university faculty position, continue to teach writing and rhetoric to undergraduates, maybe graduate students, depending on where I end up. And I would really love in an ideal world to teach something to do with public writing. I think there's a lot of interesting work being done in writing and rhetoric undergraduate majors, for instance, professional writing, those kinds of fields that really think about how can we use academic training in writing and rhetoric, literary arts, like all of that to help students develop maybe a portfolio to have on graduation that connects with various different publics or help students pursue their various intellectual interests, whether that turns into a career inside academia or outside in a lot of different contexts. So I guess that would be my ideal, to continue at a university, teaching writing and rhetoric, doing social justice work. And like I said earlier, I'd also love to do more sort of explicit work that connects my academic work with my community work as well. So you've said some wonderful things, specifically in an interview with your home institution, about how a degree in English can prepare you for a variety of fields and that ultimately seeking out examples, in a sense researching, is the best way to find your path. To that end, do we need to make a more explicit connection to how careers for students in the humanities should be seen as an extension of our coursework rather than expecting explicit career training to be part of our professionalization? Yeah, I think that would be great. I think that it would be hard to do sort of an explicit career preparation for humanities or specifically English majors that would work for every English major because the paths are so varied. But, you know, I think that it would really help to think about examples of what are people with English degrees doing, like even from a single institution, like what are our alums doing and bringing them in to maybe talk to and interact with current undergraduate students. I'm really in favor of things like that. I think that when I was an English major undergraduate and what I see with my current undergraduate students is real investment in the work, but a lot of confusion about what exactly to do with it and what sort of paths are actually out there. And now that I'm a while out from the undergraduate degree and also went on for graduate degrees, like I see people from my undergraduate program and people from my master's program and people who I sort of cross paths with and maybe different but related majors doing so many different kinds of work that I didn't even know existed, like being a communications director at like a nonprofit. And I didn't know those jobs even existed as an undergraduate. So I also want to ask, we've talked a lot about public humanities and working with a variety of audiences, but how does teaching intersect with this? We always kind of act as if everything that happens in the university is the same level of academia. But 
working with students is different than doing our research, right? How mm-hmm. is that a public that we should consider when we talk about the public humanities? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are so many publics, so many communities within the university itself, like in the students that the university serves, undergraduate, graduate, both. Um, so I like to think about making connections with what sort of spaces and entities on a campus are maybe serving those students. So I've done a lot of work with the LGBT Center at U of L, which is a really, really great center that serves LGBTQ students. And I think about teaching as a way to learn about a lot of different people and different paths and different communities. And I try to really integrate that into my teaching by asking students kind of to start with what they have and start with where they are. And I learn so much from my students. And then, you know, they go on to various careers and spaces. And I also, if I keep in touch with them or kind of see what they're doing, continue to learn from them about those paths that I might not have even known were an option for them before. So I think that learning from my students is really important and also seeing students as a public who are coming into our classrooms. Like we don't always have to go out into a community, although that's also really helpful and great work, but communities are coming to us all the time uh, in the form of students from so many different backgrounds with so many different life experiences. And I think it's really important to think about how can we learn from them as well. Oh, and I also think that giving students opportunities to connect with each other in our classes and to connect with previous students is a really great way of community building as well. I feel like seeing the classroom space as a small community, like however temporary it is, is really helpful because those students, especially if it's, you know, a gen ed class, a a writing 101 sort of class or something like that, you know, that group of students will probably never be together in that same way again. So it's really an opportunity, you know, not only to teach the class material, but also to think about how can we construct this as a community and help these students learn from each other. Is there anything that I did not bring up that you wanted to explore in this interview? Yeah, I wanted to say in addition to what I said earlier about like the variety of career paths open to English majors and humanities majors more broadly, like just kind of watching the paths of people that I went to school with or that I've taught, there are so many ways that we could help to connect students to those varied paths and those stories and maybe make a lot of what goes invisible more visible, you know, like I have friends who have gone to work at a nonprofit in one position and then sort of created their own position maybe, or people who have started working in publishing and then sort of diverged into different paths from that, maybe figured out that it didn't work for them and then now have a job working for like the state department of some um, some state or something like that. So I feel like the just the people that I know and that I've seen in the degree programs in English that I've gone through, those stories could be really, really valuable resources for undergraduates coming up thinking, you know, what can I do with an English major? I feel like there's a lot of pressure to maybe decide on one thing. Like when you start, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be an English teacher. Or like I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be uh, this one thing. But I think even people who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, so at the beginning of their career, have already often had a varied career path, especially if they were a humanities major. So I think that following those stories can be really helpful in bringing them in as examples for undergraduate students to learn from.
Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Laura. It was great that we got to meet you and talk a little bit more about your work in rhetoric, social activism, and also how rhetoric and the humanities can help prepare people for a variety of paths. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. We hope you'll join us when our full season commences this fall. In early episodes, we'll interview Dr. Paul Erickson, Program Director for Humanities, Arts, Education, and American Institutions at the American Academy of Arts and Science. In addition, we'll speak with Dr. James Golden, Director of Education at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgenphd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast has been produced by Rachel Basio and Catherine Winters in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Special thanks to Michelle Meek for help with recording. Introduction by Catherine Winters and Ryan Angley with music by Mark Setta. Catherine Winters is our editor.